Welcome to Mapping the Green Transition, the podcast where we dive deep into multidisciplinary topics as they relate to environmental and social justice. Here we discuss the new exciting ideas pioneering the global shift towards sustainability. So today we're speaking with Dr. John Eicher, a professor emeritus of agricultural economics at the University of Missouri. He has authored a number of great books and was featured in several documentaries, and he also speaks internationally on topics in sustainability and agriculture. So here it is. Hi, John. I, I want to start off by asking you today about our economic system right. and particularly how our economy has certain incentives in place that do not always align with our environmental and social well-being. Yeah. How have you and your work tried to calibrate and adjust with your emphasis on sustainability and economics and agricultural economics? How do we realign those incentives and fix this system and bring those aims closer together? I think the, the most important thing is, is to recognize that, that economics is important and the things that you will learn in economics are really critical to the functioning of, of an economy and to a society and so on. But, but economics has limitations. Economics has specific characteristics that are basically in conflict with nature and society. And it's the responsibility of government through government policies to, to make sure that the economy functions within the bounds of you know, ecological integrity and social integrity. And I think that's the most important thing to, to remember. And the, the other thing is, is that most of what you're taught in, in economics these days assume that we still have something approaching a competitive uh, market economy. Uh -huh. and, and, and we don't. Uh, the, you know, part of the responsibility of government is to maintain the competitiveness of the economy so that it functions like, you know, Adam Smith like it did in the days of Adam Smith when you had a large number of small farms, firms and all the markets were local and people knew each other and trusted each other and things of that nature. But we don't have that anymore. So I, th I think you need to keep in mind, you know, that the markets aren't competitive. They, they don't function the way that economic theory would tell you competitive markets function, even though we, we go blissfully ignorant through society pretending that they do. They don't really... And then the other thing is, is even if they function personally, they would meet our collective economic needs, which are individual, instrumental, impersonal needs, but they wouldn't meet the greater needs of society and they mm -hmm. wouldn't function within the bounds of nature. So those are the yeah. big picture things I would keep in mind. Well, that that's really interesting about um, that impersonal nature of economics and a lot of the personal aspects that we would like to have, our connections to other people, we're feeling less connected than ever. How do you reconcile those two competing forces and have, right. have the best of both worlds? Because obviously you do need an economy, but how do you right. also bring in that other side? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a matter of balance, as you suggested in your, your comments there. It's a, it's a matter of balance. Uh, basically what the economy does is it, it lets us meet our needs through impersonal relationships. If, if we were totally self-sufficient, you or I either one went out into nature and met the needs for ourselves, there wouldn't be any economy. And, and so we wouldn't need an economy. 
and we can then relate to people directly, personally within communities, you know, not buying and selling, but bartering with each other or, or gifting or simply through relationships, we do things for each other. And, and if we did that, then our economy would be strictly a personal economy through personal relationships with other people. But if we want to go beyond that, we go then to the impersonal transaction economy so that we can meet our needs by dealing and buying and selling and trading with people that we don't know. And, and, you know, then we get into production processes. We don't know how it's produced or where it's produced. We just know what it is. And, and so the, all, all of those transactions are impersonal. And so if we restricted ourselves to the purely personal transactions, then we would, wouldn't have the opportunity to take advantage of the fact that there's people all over the globe that are producing things that are useful to us and that we can do things that are useful, that we're good at, earn money, and then we, through transactions, we can get that. So it, it's important to recognize that, that that's what the economy does. But I think the problem that we've had is that we tend to focus on meeting more and more of our needs through impersonal relationships through the, rather than through the personal relationship. And I, I think the way that we got there and, and the economists are, I think, are somewhat to blame for that because they, they lead people to believe that if you simply have more money, then you're going to be better off, that you're going to be better off, you know, totally across the board, that you can basically say, okay, well, if I can make more money, I can buy more things, but I also have more time for leisure. I'll have more time to spend with other people and all that kind of stuff. But, but in the process of, of kind of orienting our work and in our economy toward the economic means, we're spending more and more time and more and more energy earning the money and doing more and more things impersonally. You know, rather than, than families taking care of their own kids, then they get somebody to do childcare rather than doing cooking and cleaning in the house. Then they, you know, eat out or hire somebody to come in and do the cooking and cleaning and so on. Mm-hmm. So you get into the, everything through impersonal transactions and pretty, pretty soon you've lost your personal relationships. And so I think we've sacrificed the personal relationships um, in the process of trying to improve our quality of life through more and more income. And I think there's ample evidence now in the U.S. going all the way back to the 50s, actually, but certainly back to the 70s. If you look at the data, we really had no increase in overall well-being in the country, even though our income has continued to grow during most of, not all of that period of time. The studies yeah. that, have, that have been done, there was a book called Bowling Alone. Putnam, I think, was the author's name. Mm-hmm. But he went back and did studies. And during the first half of the last century, up through the 1950s, if, if you look at all the measures of, of overall well-being, the social measures and the quality mm-hmm. of life measures and things of that nature, they were all improving during that period of time. And, and the economic well-being was increasing as well. Because at that period of time, then the thing that was lacking was was the lack of economic well-being or the economic means of meeting th- material needs. Mm-hmm. But it, but at the same time, most of the social organizations that have existed, many of them are dying out. Uh, that we think about the civic organizations and Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, all that sort of thing was was created during that first half of the nineteen or the twentieth century. And then beyond that point, there's been no increase and we've declined in many respects. We've wow. had tremendous increases in crime and drugs and 
and divorce and, and uh, a whole range of uh, mental, mental illness. And now we've reached a point where even longevity is going down. We're finding that particularly middle-aged men are, are dying at a higher rate than previous times, even though we had continued increase in, in economic well-being, like yeah. I say, up through the 70s in that period of time. What do you think changed between the 60s and, and these last couple of decades? I mean, where has our trend taken us? Right. Or, yeah. Well, I, I think since the, the 1970s, 1980s, <laughs> that period of time, what, what we focused on is, is economic growth in terms of, of you know, information technologies and, and uh, various mechanical technologies that basically replaced labor, uh, replaced sort of the middle class in terms of the manufacturing process. But also we've replaced sort of the clerical workers as well with the computer information systems and things of that nature. You know, every office used to have a secretary for every two or three <laughs> every two or three professionals because they wow. had to take dictation they had to type, you know, on manual typewriters and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. and, and practically nobody, I was one of the few people that, that I'd learned how to type in high school. So I, could, I was very, <laughs> very bad at it, made a lot of mistakes, but I could oh, type out my dissertation. <laughs> you know, I could type out my dissertation, you know, the spell check and all that stuff was just a, a God sent to me, but most people didn't do that. They would dictate really? to the secretary. They would write things out in longhand. The secretary would put it down. Wow. In early days of computer, you even had people that were punching cards to put yeah. it in. And uh, so, so you had a whole clerical group of people as well as the people that worked in manufacturing that were all displaced by technology and have been displaced during that whole era. And then if you look at you know, where the economic gain is, it's in the financial sector, the information sector and things of that nature. And so that that economic benefits of that have gone to that one you know, of the top 10 percent, top one percent's gotten a big share of it. But the top 10 percent or whatever. And then when you get down to the middle class, the wage earners, then theirs has been stagnant because even though the economy is growing then there's less labor, less clerical input per unit of output or per dollar's worth of output. And I think that's mm -hmm. what's, what's happened in that, that period of time. And then I think also there's, there's kind of growing despair on the part of the people that even in those cases where they're making more money, they're, they're working harder and they're, they're finding that they are suffering from the lack of quality and relationships and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. The studies that have been done on overall well-being indicate that that up to a, a fairly modest level there's there's really a strong correlation between economic well-being and overall you know emotional physical social well-being yeah yeah it, and in the international studies that have been done up to about i think it's up to about uh 15 18,000 per person uh, of income there's a real strong benefit but beyond that really modest level, and that would depend on differences in the country, we've gone so much to a transactions economy here, it takes more money to even live a, a, at poverty level than it would, you know, to be affluent in a lot of countries, because we've gone to this strictly impersonal thing where we have to earn money to meet needs that they're meeting their needs otherwise. Are, are you saying those other needs are in those other countries are almost being supplemented because they have such strong community connections or families or yeah. so they can supplement some of their health care yeah. or... Yeah. yeah, they don't they don't need nearly as much money because they're yeah. meeting their needs by other means. Right. Uh, but beyond that fairly modest level, what they've found is the the quality of our life, our satisfaction, happiness, if you will, 
is associated with the quality of our relationships within mm -hmm. families, communities, among friends. Mm -hmm. And then also having some sense of purpose and meaning, a, a feeling that living is worthwhile, that what you're doing is making a difference. So, you know, the classical economist understood that and the early neoclassical economist understood that there, would, there was a fundamental change. But, you know, we still operate as if we were in the classical economic mode and we're focusing only on material well-being. There's a fundamental difference in, in, in the books. You know, if you you read the books, I explained there's a fundamental difference between economic value and social value. Social yep. value is personal and ethical value. Ethical value is not instrumental. It's not a means to anything else. It's impersonal. Mm -hmm. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. There's no way you can buy it. There's no way you can rationalize it or whatever. So, so we need to understand that I, I think the most important thing I've ever written about that's gotten very little attention is the difference between economic value, social value, and ethical values. Ethical values are kind of impersonal. Ethical yeah. values can evolve out of social values because, yeah. as I say, you, you learn how you ought to treat everybody by how you treat your friends, you know, and your interaction with them and your family. That's the way you learn how you ought to, that's where your value system comes from, kind of your ethical value system. Mm -hmm. But when it evolves to the ethical level, then it's, it's impersonal. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. what's right for your friends or your family's right for everybody. And, and what's wrong is wrong for everybody. And, and it's, okay. it's not yeah. instrumental. There's an instrumental aspect to even social values. If you're, I, I say people, if, if you want to have a friend, you got to be a friend. There's got to be a sense of reciprocity going there. Mm -hmm. But if it's purely ethical, uh, moral action, there's, there's no expectation of anything in return. You simply mm -hmm. do it because the value you get is in, in doing it, not, not in any reciprocity, not in, not in any return. And then the economic values ought to be shaped so that they, serve needs that we can't meet socially, but that, that are bounded by those ethical and social values. It'd be really interesting to go into then how this relates to the agriculture side of things and like industrial agriculture. Yeah. Uh, what are the ethical and social failures there and right. even economic failures that are influencing industrial agriculture like you, right. you explained? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, I think it goes all the way back to to the worldview that I that I just touched on here, and and that's mm -hmm. one reason it's so difficult to to solve the issues and address the problems of industrial agriculture. Mm -hmm. The industrial agriculture is kind of based on that sort of mechanistic worldview that evolved out of the era of the Enlightenment, and and so that that thinking, that sort of reductionist thinking, that the world works like a big machine and it has these separable parts, and you can identify specific cause and effects. Hmm. Back, in fact, in the early days, as an agricultural economist, we used to go out and tell farmers, we'd say, you want to make a farm work like a factory in a field and a feedlot like an assembly line. The whole idea was we're going to make agriculture more efficient, and then it was going to bring down the cost of production, it'd bring down uh -huh. the cost of food, and it'd be good for everybody. It's kind of carrying on economic well-being is going to result in greater good for everybody. We didn't anticipate the negative environmental, social, even economic consequences of doing that. Because when we, we specialized in those operations, that industrial process is kind of a linear process of extracting things. And then you, you end up with waste. 
and you end up with products, but you just keep extracting. There's no regeneration. Yeah. There's no renewal in that whole process. And so when we got to the point then where we overload the, overloaded the capacity of nature to cycle those, those chemicals, chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers and things like that, then they spill over into the natural environment. And then they turned into, you know, the things that were potentially useful turned into toxic materials because of the concentration of them. And then also, as we mechanized, then there were fewer and fewer employment opportunities in agriculture. And then mm -hmm. that's destroyed the economies of rural communities and destroyed mm -hmm. the communities overall. Because, you know, as I've talked about many times, it takes people to support a community for relationships and, you know, to have schools and healthcare and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. so I, I woke up to that during the 1980s, which I still refer to as the farm financial crisis, because mm -hmm. I could see the negative impacts on family farms because we were driving family farmers out of business. And, you know, the idea was that we would improve the efficiency of agriculture and create new profit opportunities for farmers. We'd have profitable farmers and economically viable rural communities would be good for everything. And as economists would tell you, you know, they ignore the transition cost or of, of moving, we just assumed farmers would find better occupations in the growing economy. Uh, and uh -huh. so there wouldn't be any downside to it, but it didn't work. And I saw that driving farmers out of business. They were, you know, going bankrupt, committing suicide. I was head of the extension agricultural economics department at the University of Georgia. And we go out and counsel with these farmers. And I wow. came to the conclusion that the farmers were the biggest problems and they would share their financial records with it with the ones that have been doing what we've been telling them to do, specialize, standardize, get bigger. And they'd borrowed a lot of money to do it. And then we got into the early eighties with record high interest rates and all that kind of stuff. The agricultural commodity markets collapsed because we oversupplied even the export markets and everything come crashing down. So that, then, that really seems like just going back to what we were talking about earlier, an example where the economics of it don't account for all of the external right. costs that it, these kind of industrial operations yeah. incur. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't respect the, the bounds of nature. They don't mm -hmm. respect the natural social bounds. And after they expand mm -hmm. to a certain point, then they begin to be destructive because mm -hmm. they're just spilling things into the natural environment. That's beyond the capacity of it. They're, they're doing things to the rural communities and society that they can't stand. And so, so I began to see uh, the the economic negative economic impacts first, and then I began to see the community impacts because there were rural areas that that during the 1980s, you know, would lose 30 for 40 percent of their total population. Those places were collapsing, and then the environmental part of it came. My realization came later. Yeah. See, I began to realize that that the fundamental problem is is that was a, a mechanistic approach to economic development, but, but it's an organismic, it's a living world. Mm -hmm. It's not a mechanistic world. And the alternative worldview is that is the world is a big living organism that's all interconnected mm -hmm. and that, that it functions like a living organism function. It's continually renewing, regenerating, recycling, things of that nature. And, and that we human beings, including farmers or you and I, we're a part of that. We're part of that interconnected living system. And so we, we need to function in harmony with it. And the industrial agriculture model was functioning in conflict with, with the environmental and social context within which it was functioning. Right. And so sustainable agriculture then is about 
recreating agriculture as a living system as opposed to a mechanistic process. So what is the alternative to industrial ag- agriculture in your opinion? And what, what are the consequences or, or benefits of yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I think about sustainable agriculture, I go back to the general definition of, of sustainability, which I think most of us that really take it seriously go back kind of to the Brundtland Commission definition that they talked about sustainable development being development that meets the needs of the present, yeah. and, but leaves equal opportunities for the future to meet their needs as well. And so I think that's the criteria for for sustainable agriculture. And there's very, you see right now, regenerative agriculture is what Mm -hmm. big focus is on because they're talking about regenerative agriculture to regenerate the resource base, but you're capturing carbon, uh, putting carbon back into that living carbon. You know, life is a lot about carbon combined with a lot of other things. And so you're, you're capturing the carbon, putting that back into a cyclical process. But a sustainable agriculture has to not only be regenerative, it has to be resilient, has to be able to withstand the shocks of weather, climate change, uh, shocks like COVID-19, like we had last year. You know, that's a good indication what we have now is not sustainable. It would have collapsed mm. if we hadn't stepped in with government programs and bailed out yeah. the big corporations. So it has to be resilient and regenerative. And then it has to be able to kind of redesign and reshape itself as it goes on into uh-huh. the on the future it has to be able to continue to evolve over time as well. Oh, yeah, and the, yeah. the other point too, is that it has to be sufficiently efficient and productive uh-huh. to meet the needs of the present. And that's where you, the balance comes in. If you focus so much on efficiency, then you begin to compromise resilience, which is where we are and you compromise regenerative capacity. But if you focus too much on regenerative capacity, alone, then you end up, you could end up with a, with a system that's not resilient, or you could end up with a system that's not sufficiently efficient to meet the needs of people. So you have to balance that. And I think what we've done in sustainable agriculture and sustainability to a great extent, we, we focused much more on, on the future. We focused much more on, okay, we've got to, you know, conserve resources and protect the environment and deal with climate and all of that because of the future possibilities of what it might be catastrophic might be a total civilizational collapse but we haven't focused enough on meeting the needs of everybody in the present those social equity and justice needs and so we we face resistance all the time in in focusing on the future because we have people who don't feel that their needs are being met today so they say why should i sacrifice for the future so we have this system that's using so many resources in the present, and that's not working for the needs of the present. As you're saying, there's tons right. of people who don't have access to these things. What is going wrong with distributing enough uh, agricultural products to people? So, you know, you hear talk about, oh, we've got to have industrial agriculture to feed the world. Or if we didn't have it, then mm-hmm. food prices would go up and all that. That's that's not what we're doing here at all. We've been burning mm-hmm. up about 40% of the of the U.S. corn crop in our cars is ethanol. And, and mm-hmm. we've got hungry people here that, in this country, but we're doing that. We're exporting about 20% of, of whatever we produce in this country and not to the hungry people of the world. We don't export to places where they can't afford to, to pay market uh-huh. prices. We export to places like China and places, you know, that have a growing middle class and that sort of thing. So what we're doing is, you know, we're we're not focusing on feeding people. 
And the reason we're not, and this is an important point to get across, is hunger really started back when we had the enclosure. I I call it discretionary hunger. Mm. You had people that were hungry before, and you have people in other countries that farm land in common that that are hungry. But but it's involuntary. It's because there's not enough food. Uh But this whole idea of when there's plenty of food, and there's more than enough food in the world today to give everybody in the world more than an adequate diet, but still you have starvation, that sort of thing. But but the the, the thing is, is that once you went to a market economy in terms of people meeting their needs, there always have been and always will be people within any society, a significant number, that can't do anything through no fault of their own that will earn enough money in this impersonal economy mm. to meet their basic needs for food and a lot of other things. Wow. You know, I, yeah. I argue that we're all of equal inherent worth, but we're inherently unequal in our ability to do things that have economic values, either through lack of physical or mental capacity or the way we were raised or what opportunities we've had up to now or didn't have up to now. There's a whole range of things. And the market will only respond to scarcity, which is determined by your willingness and ability to buy something. Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't have if you don't have any money, you can't make things scarce. You can't bring them to yeah. you. Yeah. And 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 the market responds to to scarcity or money rather than need. Mm-hmm. And and we need to recognize that. And so there'll always be a role within society to make sure that everybody's basic human needs are met mm-hmm. because the markets won't do that. There'll always be a role within every society to protect the environment because markets won't do that. There's a whole range of lists I could go down and that's called market failures. I've been working yeah. with group on hunger, but hunger is a market failure. We need to mm. recognize that. And our government programs haven't been too successful either because they're so impersonal again. We've, mm-hmm. we've gotten rather than caring about people individually, we just pay taxes and have government food assistance programs and these impersonal transactions never meet those personal needs. So I've been working with uh, people. I've been trying to promote the idea of using public utilities to deal with the issue of hunger. I said, it's a market mm-hmm. failure. So let's, let's have a community food utility. And part of that approach would be to take the current government food assistance funds and take it through the utility and the local utility then within a community would say, okay, if you're, if you're willing to put the government food assistance funds in here, then we make sure that you have enough nutritious feed to eat all the time, regardless of what it costs or, you know, beyond. And then I, I suggested that we could use community food dollars to do that. And so you then you end up with everybody has an equal number of community food dollars, but some people's food dollars are paid for with government benefits. Some of them are partially paid for by contributing to the local thing. And you could even have people within the community, if you had enough food to do this, is they could buy in and they could be paying full price for their community food dollars. And you'd have the whole, all of those groups then would be receiving food at the same place and eating together at a local restaurant or it's what I'm, thinking about, you know, with the community food dollars is that mm-hmm. you, you bring people together around the interest in the need for food. And some people are paying full price, maybe even premium price for people that just want to support the system. Other people yeah. aren't paying anything. The government's covering it. Some people are working for, but when you go to buy your food at the grocery store or go to the restaurant to eat, everybody's paying in the same dollars. Nobody so, knows who's paying more and who's paying less. So yeah. you're empowering people and building community in the process of 
providing them food. And I think the only way you're ever going to have uh, a sustainable solution to hunger is if you if you build in that the empowerment of people and the recreation of society and community in the process mm-hmm. of giving food, just giving people money and giving people food isn't going to solve the problem. But what but, now would fix the supply side where obviously this industrial agriculture is not working, it's, it's polluting right. the environment, it's destroying communities. Right. What is the supply side? What would, in an ideal world, what would that look like well, uh, the, to meet those needs? The, yeah. the transition would be, and quit, we'd quit subsidizing the large corporate agricultural operations, which we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And we would enforce the antitrust laws, which you're finally hearing about on the big agricultural corporations. We just It's just so obscene in terms of the market power that these large corporations have to control the food system. You know, it's like three or four three or four large firms control anywhere from 30 to 40 to 70 percent of the processing facilities right across the board wow. in agriculture yeah. and so you know restore some sense of competition there but move away from government programs that subsidize large-scale specialized standardized operations and based on this idea of increasing or maintaining economic efficiency is good for society and and move those programs as i've been involved in putting together some policy programs, move those programs to to facilitating a transition rather than absorbing the risk of these big systems. Absorb the risk of farmers that want to transition or new farmers that want to get into a regenerative, resilient, uh, resourceful agricultural systems. And there's all kinds of approaches out there that I've been working with people in these areas going back to the ni- late 1980s. And there's a you know, the organic movement came came along, but there's also biodynamic farming and there's holistic resource management and there's permaculture and and there's uh, ecological agriculture and regenerative agriculture, restorative agriculture, uh, management intensive grazing. And there's just a whole whole range of approaches to sustainable agriculture that have been evolving over the past 30 or 40 years that all they need is a, is an opportunity, you know, to to make the transition. It's like mm-hmm. in regenerative agriculture, once once the soil productivity and the natural ecosystems restored, they can be very productive. But there's a long process of, of restoring and regenerating, uh, you know, the productivity of soils and lands that have been worn out, and reestablishing healthy agro ecosystems. You know, where you have uh, predators of the pests that are there now so you can cut back on the pesticides and things of this nature and you you restore the productivity of the soil so you don't have to use the fertilizers and you you to humane treatment and treatment of animals and you integrate crop and livestock systems as a part of restoring all that takes time yeah. and we these farmers need help moving through it but as you move through that then these are management intensive system the opposite of industrial agriculture it takes more management some more labor but you can remove the drudgery through technology Mm -hmm. but you still have people that are working on the land that that are there they understand their soil their plants their animals their neighbors um, and they work in harmony with that so the whole system's ready to be transformed and i think if you had a I, i saw the shift in government policies back in the early 70s when we up to them we were supporting independent family farms as a means of food security then we shifted over to supporting efficiency. We said, okay, bring down the cost of food. We don't have to worry about whether there's family farms or not. 
But if, if we had a similar transition now to a sustainable regenerative agriculture, we could see a transformation in a decade or two that people would just be astounded at. Yeah. And that'll take us back to more localized food systems when we begin yeah. to store competition in processing and so on. And and there there's uh, we know legislation now where they're putting out to to help uh, smaller and, and modest scale processing facilities get reestablished and get them uh, federally inspected, things of that nature. So there's, there's things in motion that are moving us back toward a more, you know, a more balanced kind of food system that's still productive, but it's also regenerative and restorative as well and resilient. So I think it's just yeah. a matter of changing policy and, and yeah. a matter of people really waking up to the fact that what we're doing, have been doing, isn't working and the negative side of it. And, and from, from the perspective of the average consumer, is this going to also mean more, like we're going to be seeing more subsistence farming? Or what, what does that look like yeah. uh, in that regard? Yeah. I, th I think in terms of what will be produced, we have to produce what nature will allow us to produce in, in a place, in a regenerative, sustainable kind of system. And I think what we would end up with would be fewer of the, the main feed and food grains that we have now. I, I can't remember the percentage, but a huge percentage of total production is in corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, cotton, that sort of thing, because yeah. of the specialization on those things. So we're going to end up with a much more diverse cropping system to accommodate nature, which means we're going to have much more diverse diets. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a part of it too. We're probably going to have less meat, less livestock. I think livestock are an essential portion livestock and poultry are essential in these regenerative systems these diversity right. systems Live, like livestock play a critical role in recycling nutrients the you know they eat the feed they eat the grain that produces meat and milk and eggs and things like that but the waste goes back into that system much more productive than if it broke down without livestock in that system so i think they're a natural part of it but not in the huge concentrated animal feeding operations we have today so there's probably going to be less meat in it and people yeah. are always asking what, you know, what would be the increase in cost? And I always remind people that only about 15% of what we pay for food today is actually goes to the farm level. The rest yeah. of it's all processing, transportation, advertising, packaging. If you go back to more local food systems, more raw, minimally processed foods, more home preparation, home preparation is a good place to build families. And, you know, I grew up helping my mother cook and doing chores in the kitchen. It didn't yeah. hurt me at all. So most of the estimates I've seen, it, we need to be able to get through a transition. It's not a matter yeah. of just abandoning industrial agriculture all at once. But if we go through a transition, we rebuild the productive capacity. We might be paying anywhere between 8 to 12% more for food overall. That would be more healthful, be more nutritious. We wouldn't be destroying the environment. We'd be providing yeah. economic opportunities for people. And I think if you gave most people the choice and recognizing we're not going to solve hunger by making food cheap, we got to do that some other way. Most people would be say, I'd willingly pay 10 to 12% more for food yeah. that's really nutritious, that's not destroying the environment, that's not paying, you know, exploiting farm workers as we're doing today with, you know, below wage, terrible working conditions and below wage work and all that kind of stuff. And I think people would, would be more than willing to pay the cost if we'd be yeah. really level with them about, you know, what the possibilities are of creating something new and something fundamentally better. I'm, I'm wondering what you would say about um, the consumption side of it, though. Like, I mean, obviously, the U.S. consumes a ton of meat and yeah. uh, and meat is very resource intensive. 
And right. if the rest of the world consumed as much meat as we do, that would yeah. uh, be very problematic very fast. Um, right. So I'm wondering, are there, what are some of the sacrifices that we might have to make as consumers uh, in our diets? Maybe like, you know, even avocados take so much water or, right. you know, there's all these very resource intensive foods. Is that going to have to change our diet in I, some way? I think it's a matter of recognizing we need to adjust our diet to what we can produce here in a sustainable mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And that means we may not have uh, as much of some of the things as people are talking about. And people talk about, well, we've got to produce so much more so people are going to eat so much more meat. Well, we found out in this country it's not always healthful to eat yeah. more meat. I think if we come around and, and recognize, you know, we would be healthier mm -hmm. if, if we're a part of this natural system. We, we would be healthier if we're eating food that can be produced within this natural system in a sustainable way because we're created in such a way that our health is interrelated with the health of the natural system of which we're a part. And so if we farm in such a way and produce foods that are healthier for the, for the natural environment, it's going to be foods that are healthier for us. You could say, yeah. you, you know, we could easily argue, well, gee, people are going to have to give up uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. You know? <laughs> We'd say, well, how terrible that would be. Well, we've got to produce tons more of Krispy Kreme donuts because people are going to want that. And that's, it tends to be saying, well, as population or as income increases, people are going to want meat. So, so we've got to destroy the environment and destroy rural communities to produce more meat because people just are going to want more meat. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Hmm. You say, well, what's going to help people become healthy. Well, we need yeah. to help people make healthy choices. And if they make healthy choices, they'll make choices that are consistent with the healthy environment. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's where I think we ought to shift around this idea that uh, we're going to eat whatever we want to eat and it won't destroy our health. That's, that's yeah. the same, <laughs> yeah. same fallacy. We're going to eat what yeah. we want to eat and we have to destroy the environment to eat what we want to eat. That, those kind of arguments to me just don't make sense. We need and that, to that of course, what... yeah, that, that opens a whole new uh, door of different issues we have in our society about not knowing what's healthy for us or having advertisers mm -hmm. convince us that something is a, uh, is, yeah. is delicious or that we want the, it. The yeah. most the most bothersome thing that I see on the horizon is is the is continued belief that technology is going to be the solution to everything. Mm. That, technology, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm certainly not anti-technology, but we, we need to focus on creating technology that's consistent with the bounds of nature and the bounds of society. Right. And right. and if we focus our creation of technology on respecting the bounds of human relationships and on the bounds of nature, then we can have technological advances. But our technology today is, is focused on destroying those bounds, ignoring them. They're, just look at them as obstacles that technology and human ingenuity will remove all bounds. And we'll be almighty and all powerful and we can do whatever we want. That's, that hasn't worked you know, for the past, <laughs> I don't know how many centuries it hasn't worked and it's not going to work in the future, but we just keep yeah. doing it. Yeah. Most of our problems today are the consequence of technologies that were adopted and they work for a while. And then we begin to see the downside. Yeah. We feel the consequences because the technologies were not developed to be consistent with society and nature. We, we've mm -hmm. got to learn to function the economy we got to learn to to create an economy that functions in harmony with society and with nature. How much can we 
really re-educate and, and change our culture and really change ourselves as humans uh, to be in the best interest of people we don't even know, future generations who, yeah. who just seem so distant to us to yeah. think about. It's, so It's, it's a yeah. purely ethical decision as we yeah. discovered ethical values before. You, you come to the conclusion, this is the right way for me to behave here. This is the reason. <clears throat> and we probably ought to wrap up pretty soon, but I, sure, yeah. you know, I think the, the big question and it relates to what you're saying now is, is, is we need to come to the realization, I think, that we're here for a purpose. You and I and everybody else is here for a purpose. If there's no purpose for our life, it doesn't make any difference what we do. You, yeah. you know, there's yeah. there's no way to tell right from wrong. You, you know, there's no reason to get up in the morning, but I say, well, there's no reason not to. So yeah. <laughs> life just doesn't make any sense, you know. Yeah. So so I think where I come come out on all of this, looking out in the future, and I say it's purely ethical and moral because there's there's no way we're going to get any benefit from doing anybody personal benefit from doing anything for anybody in the future right there's no social value we don't know those people we won't relate to them so we we simply do it because we think that that's what we ought to do yeah that, that that's consistent with our purpose and, and i'm convinced the purpose is not something we're to achieve but it, it's kind of a process of our life it's kind of a path that we're meant to walk and I think if, if we find that path, and it's not easy, we never know for sure whether we're on it or whether we're not, but we have a sense when things feel right, when things feel good, you know. We do something and we think that felt right. We do something else we're not so sure about it. We do some things we know we shouldn't have done, <laughs> you know. That's that sense within that's telling us where we ought to go. So if, yeah. if, we, if we can find that path and walk it to the best of our ability, we will have made the greatest individual contribution that we possibly could have made. If you'd like to support this podcast and other sustainable initiatives in Southeast Iowa, you can send a donation to sustainablelivingcoalition.org. You can also stay tuned for more from Mapping the Green Transition, and be sure to check out our online article in the Iowa Source. Thank you for your support.